Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for Grace Fellowship Church. We uh, welcome you if this is your first time. We're really glad to have you here to join with us. This morning, I have the privilege of telling you about the unstoppable advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This topic should excite us. Jesus taught us to pray for it. He taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of what should excite us is that as Christ's kingdom grows, the kingdoms of this world lose their power to oppress and do harm. And so Jesus will destroy all who delight in self-promotion, in envy, murder, rivalry, injustice, war, assassinations, the displacement of people groups, rape, the subjugation of women, the exploitation of the poor, and all kinds of evil power, vengeance, institutionalized theft. All of these things will be done away with. There will be a glorious day when Jesus completes his work. And in the meantime, he's doing his work bit by bit, inch by inch, as his people take the message of his kingdom out to the four corners of the earth. But the growth of Christ's kingdom comes with a price tag because Jesus's messengers will suffer. We will read about that in the book of Mark as we continue our sermon series. Uh, if you don't have an outline or a Bible or a pen for that, please feel free to raise your hand and, and Becca in the back will help you to, to get what you need. And that will be making its way up here. We are going to be in Mark chapter 6 as we uh, continue our study. But before we get to Mark 6, we, we need some background on this passage in order for us to really get it. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 12. Is that funny? Yeah, pretty far back. In Exodus chapter 12, it, it will help us to remember how God has grown his kingdom in the past. Because as we see Jesus growing his kingdom, it will remind us. One of the largest leaps forward in God's kingdom in the Old Testament was when he rescued Israel out of slavery to Egypt. And so I'm going to read part of that from Exodus 12. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 35. Exodus 12, I'm going to start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, 
and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here we are where God's people, the nation of Israel, have been slaves in Egypt for centuries. And when the time finally comes for rescue, it comes with haste. God says, all of a sudden, This is it. Tonight's the night. Kill these lambs, paint the blood on your doorposts, and eat them, but make sure there's nothing left over. If there is in the morning, burn it. And as you eat, eat with your staff in your hand and your sandals on your feet. Be ready to go. You don't even have time to bake bread, unleavened bread. Don't have time to pack up your provisions, and you need to be dressed and ready to go. And this rescue of God's people came in the context of widespread death, where the firstborn of every household was going to die. The firstborn of every man and beast, or a substitute firstborn, would be taken from the flock of sheep for those who listened to God. And for those who killed the sheep, a feast would be celebrated within each household. But in in this event, in this Passover event in Israel's history, there's this odd and really awkward combination of settings where you have on the same night, the good guys are feasting and preparing for freedom. And as for the bad guys, well, we're told later in Exodus 12, verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. It is a chilling statement. And as we move into Mark, and as uh, Mark chapter 6, and Mark tells us about the first major expansion of Jesus' kingdom in the book of Mark, He has this scene in mind. So we're going to be in chapter 6, starting at verse 7. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 546. And as we read the passage, as we work our way through it, keep this Passover scene in mind. Because we are going to see, on, on the rest of your outline, we will see that the Son of God grows his kingdom through messengers proclaiming repentance 
and through messengers who suffer and die. And so we will see connections to Passover along the way. Let's pray together for God's help to understand these things, and then I'll read the first paragraph. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we have in your word. Lord, we, we, we cannot understand what you have to say with us unless you grant us your spirit. And so we trust in you. And Father, please give us eyes to see that the end of all things is at hand. And therefore, Lord, please make us self-controlled and sober-minded as we consider what you have in store as you grow your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're in Mark chapter 6, later into the New Testament in the life of Jesus, starting at verse 7. Here's Jesus. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. The twelve are his twelve disciples. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This paragraph actually launches a new section in the book of Mark. If you look at the, the map of Mark, that box, we're, we're up to the, the, the third part of this first half of Mark, where the king is creating a vision for his kingdom as, as he's launching his kingdom, expanding it. And here in this section, Jesus entrusts more authority to his disciples than he has to this point, and he shapes them to be the kind of messengers he wants them to be. Back in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that was where he appointed these 12, and he appointed them to be with him. And in chapter 3, Mark said that Jesus appointed them to be with him so that he could send them out to preach and to cast out demons. Now chapter 6 records the fulfillment of those wishes from chapter 3. Jesus' kingdom grows bigger than Jesus himself. Jesus is God, and he, he could keep the work all to himself, but he chooses to include his people in growing his kingdom. So here in verse 7 of chapter 6, Mark, Jesus calls the disciples, he sends them out two by two, and he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. His instructions come in verses 8 and 9, where he says, Don't take bread, don't take a bag, don't take any money, don't even take a second tunic. Do take a staff and your sandals. These are pretty funny instructions. You know, we might think, why does he mention, take your sandals? Is anyone likely to go on a long journey barefoot if Jesus hadn't reminded them to take their sandals? It's, I don't think that's the case. I think Mark is drawing attention to things that will make us think of the Passover, just as the Israelites were to eat with sandals in their feet and staffs in their hands. So Jesus says, take your staff, take your sandals, and don't take any food provisions or any means by which to secure food provisions on your journey. No money, no bread with you. 
verses 10 and 11, he says, find a house to stay in and stay there until you leave. And if anyone where you go, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. This shaking the dust off their feet was a way to pronounce a curse on someone in ancient times. It, it was a way to proclaim that, that bad things are going to happen here and I want nothing to do with it because you didn't receive me. The modern equivalent is something like raising your hands to just communicate, this is on you. This is, I've done what I can and I'm, my job is done here. It's on you. Remember the background of Passover from Exodus. Wearing sandals, carrying their staff, eating food in a house, not leaving the house, leaving no extra food for morning to take with them as they travel. And Mark wants us to read this and think of this as a new Passover where God is doing something amazing. God is making a new people for himself. He is rescuing slaves out of their slavery. He's causing his kingdom to leap forward in the world. And he does it as these disciples go out to preach two by two. These are the good guys, and they're helping to spread the news. They're the ones in the house, the ones with the staff and the sandals. And their message in verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This means that they are proclaiming that people who are sinning against God should stop sinning. That's what it means to repent. They should turn from their sin. They should hate their sin. They should turn to trust God and love him the most. A few weeks ago, Daniel Fiella gave a sermon for us on repentance to talk all about what, what that means. This is the message of the kingdom. It's a message of repentance. And in Mark, this message of repentance has been all over the book. This message began with John. In chapter 1, verse 4, John appeared, John the Baptist, he appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this message of repentance continued with Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So repentance must take place for sins to be forgiven. We must turn from sin in order to believe the good news of Jesus' rescue. There's nothing new here. There's nothing unusual about this message in Mark as you read through. But what it does is it confirms the disciples as messengers of Jesus. As John proclaimed this message and Jesus came and picked it up, so now Jesus' followers preach the same message. Therefore, they are bringing the same promises of forgiveness, of life, healing, and hope. And they confirm that message in verse 13 by doing the same signs that Jesus has done up to this point. They cast out many demons, and they heal many sick people. How does this apply for us? Our message is the same. If we want to see Jesus' kingdom grow, we must proclaim repentance. This means that as we talk to people about Jesus and his kingdom, we're not proclaiming to them an assurance of wealth or prosperity. We're not telling people what they want to hear. We don't have a message of someone who went to heaven and came back again to tell us about it. The Son of God grows his kingdom as we, his messengers, call people to turn away from their sin. 
That is the message of the kingdom. And this, the, the good news of Jesus's rescue is not good unless it really solves the problem of the bad news. That Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so please preach this message to your, your friends. Preach this message to your spouse when, when they struggle to change. Preach this message to your children when bickering and selfishness kick in. Children, please preach this message of repentance to your parents when bickering and selfishness kick in. Preach this message to church members. Preach this message to the church leaders. Preach this message to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your cousins and your uncles and your teammates and your classmates. This is the message of the kingdom. With this message, this message of repentance that people must turn from their sins, with this message, Jesus Christ grows his kingdom. And now when you preach this message of repentance, you don't have to be mean about it. Our job is not to trap people or to nag them or to attack them. It's far better to understand them and help them to see their need for repentance. But the message in the end is repentance. Perhaps you're afraid to preach this message. Perhaps you, like me, are afraid that as you preach this message, it will affect your relationships and people won't like you. A number of years back, I had some acquaintances to whom I suggested that it was probably not a good idea to copy software illegally on their computers, which they were doing aggressively. And because I made that suggestion, for years they ridiculed me about it. They're like, oh, here comes the software guy. Everybody take the software off your computer. And that went on for years. And ever since then, I've been scared to bring anything up with these folks. Because I, I don't like that. Do you fear a negative response? If so, you are right to fear it. Look at the next section. The Son of God throws his kingdom through messengers who suffer and die. Let me read verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. The first paragraph told us of Jesus sending out his messengers with a message of repentance, and Mark immediately switches gears in verse 14. He, he tells us now of the fate of John the Baptist. As people hear of the, the disciples preaching repentance, they're starting to think about well, what's going on, and they have different explanations. Remember, John was the very first character to come on the scene in Mark in chapter 1. And verse 2 of chapter 1 called John the Lord's messenger who would prepare the way. And he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. And the last we heard in, in chapter 1, verse 14, he had been arrested. Now in chapter 6, as the disciples go out to preach, Herod, King Herod, has a guilty conscience, and he fears that John has been raised from the dead. And he is afraid for very good reason, because as verse 16 says, 
Herod beheaded John. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And some said that John had been raised in 14, and some alternative explanations are given in 15, but Herod comes back to John has been raised. Now, why is this important, that Herod is afraid that John has been raised? It's because we we don't understand this not being a part of that culture, but in the ancient Jewish mindset, resurrection was typically associated with the final judgment and the vindication of the nation. That, that the vindication of the Jews as God's people would come at the resurrection. And so if resurrection is taking place, that's a sign that the judgment has come, the final judgment. Let me give you an example from Daniel 12, verses 1 to 3. It says this, But at that time your people, this is God talking to Daniel, But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so resurrection is associated with judgment. And if John has been raised from the dead, Herod has every reason to fear impending judgment. He fears the everlasting contempt of the God of Israel. And so there's this pattern that the message of repentance may lead to repentance, and those who repent will suffer, and they will die, and they will be raised, and then they will be vindicated at the last judgment. And that's what the Jews are expecting to happen. And we as readers are set up, even in this passage, to expect a similar thing. We're set up here to expect judgment. If John has been raised, or Herod is even afraid that John has been raised, And Herod is in for some big trouble. And put that together with the connections we saw in the first paragraph back to the Passover. Remember, we see God's people with their staff and their sandals and no provision for their travel, and they're staying in a house. We should expect next to see judgment on the firstborn of God's enemies, because that's what happens at Passover. And we should expect to see the good guys feasting on lamb chops. Death must accompany God's great rescue. And here is Herod, a prime candidate for judgment. He beheaded God's messenger. So let's see him, or at least let's see him suffer as his firstborn son dies so that God's people can go free. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You see the message of repentance coming from John? And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, 
Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So we get this flashback as we see that John has preached repentance to Herod and it even makes sense that John would suffer for it because the Jews would have expected that from, from Daniel and, and other passages in the Old Testament. And so he suffers, verse 17. He's taken into custody, 19 and 20. He's, he, he's, he's held in prison. This jives with the experience of the Hebrew nation. And then in, in verse 29, we arrive at the feast that we expect because this is God's new Passover. And here's the feast, but it's not the good guys who are feasting. And we expect that the king's firstborn son should die. But instead, verse 22, the queen's daughter dances. What's going on? This isn't what should happen. And the king should be releasing the captives, but In verse 23, he's offering half of his kingdom to a a dancer who pleases him. And a lamb from the flock should be served on a platter. But instead, verses 25 and 28, what ends up on the platter is the head of God's messenger. This whole scene is twisted. It's deeply twisted from what we'd expect. It's twisted from what it should be. This is a Passover, but this is one painful Passover. It's painful, not for God's enemies. Okay, I'll grant Herod has some regrets in verse 26. There's some pain for him there. He doesn't like having to kill John. But, But really, it's painful for God's people. God's messenger who proclaims repentance has become the Lamb. God's messenger doesn't share the feast. He is the feast. He is slaughtered, he is mocked, and he is set on a platter like a side of meat. How could this happen? What are we to make of this scene? It is indeed a picture of God's Passover for his people. The Son of God grows his kingdom through a painful Passover. But this Passover is not about freedom and security. This Passover is about the death of God's messengers who proclaim repentance. And thus, it foreshadows the fate that awaits the 12 disciples who just went out as Jesus's messengers to proclaim repentance. They go out, they proclaim repentance. As people hear of it, Mark immediately foreshadows to what happened to the last messenger who proclaimed repentance. John was the chief messenger from God, the one calling all men and women to repent, the one pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. 
The main point here is that the Son of God grows his kingdom through messengers who preach repentance, who then suffer and die for the glory of God. This connects to a theme in Mark. We've seen a little bit of it so far, but it's going to really pick up in the rest of the book. The theme of the disruptive expansion of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is disruptive, both to those receiving the kingdom, hearing about it, and to those spreading the kingdom. The messenger, the the capital M messenger, the one, John, sent to prepare the way for the Son of God by preaching repentance, he had to die. And therefore, the Son of God, who himself preaches repentance, he has to die. He will have to die. This scene with John's death foreshadows for us Jesus' coming death, because if God's kingdom will take off, Jesus must die so sinners can be set free. But then it also foreshadows something else for the twelve and for us. Every new messenger sent by the kingdom of God to expand God's kingdom by preaching repentance, every new messenger must also die just like the king. Let me unpack what this means with four applications for us at the end here. Application number one. Be sobered and astonished. Be sobered and astonished. This is what it cost to bring God's kingdom to earth. Someone had to die. A lamb has to be sacrificed. John pictures that for us here, but it's really meant to pave the way for us for Jesus. John prepares the way not only by preaching and baptizing, but also by dying for Jesus to prepare the way. Be sobered and astonished by this, because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, just like John, he will be unjustly arrested. Just like John, he will be feared by the authorities. Just like John, he will challenge the ruling powers of the day. Just like John, Jesus' death will be given as a gift from a ruler afraid of the people. And just like John, Jesus' body will be laid in a tomb. Verse 29. Be sobered and astonished. Jesus came to die so you and I could have life, so that he could set us free from our sin. That's number one. Be sobered and astonished. Application number two. Repent of your sin. It's pretty straightforward. Repent of your sin. The beginning of Jesus' message was, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' message is one of repentance. He wants to give you life, but first you must let go of death. The money that you think will make you happy will kill you. The career path you think will be secure is killing you. The pictures you look at on your computer will devour you. The secret life that you think is a big secret, it will be found out. Turn aside from these things so Jesus can heal you. Turn aside and give yourself to something better. Trust that Jesus died in your place and you can be right with God. Repent of your sin. Number two. Number three. Proclaim repentance. 
Application number three, proclaim repentance. If you trust in Jesus, you are now his messenger for his kingdom. And your message is the same message that Jesus had, that John had, that Jesus' disciples had. Go out and proclaim that people should repent. And don't do this because you hate them and you want to dig at them and tell them all the things they're doing wrong. Do this because you love them and you want what's best for them and you want to see them turn and find life. By all means, please get to know people, listen to them, understand them, and as you do that, show them that there is something much better than what they're living for. And if we make any change to this message, any change to try to make it easier for people to hear or to ensure that people will love us and feel more self-esteem, that any such change will alter the heart of Jesus' kingdom, a different message gets in the way and doesn't help anybody. So application number three, proclaim repentance. And application number four, as you repent of your sin and you proclaim repentance, number four is expect painful results. Expect painful results. We need to get this out of the way up front. People will not like you. People will not like us as we proclaim repentance because it's not what they want to hear. Many will ridicule us. Some will attack us. They may not, in the end, want to be friends with us. Our families may attack us. Our companions may think we're throwing our lives away, and and someday this message may even become illegal. It may be considered hate speech or intolerant of diversity. But this is how the Son of God grows his kingdom. It's no longer on the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. He grows his kingdom on the death of his appointed messengers. And look at what happens next, just to give you a preview of the next section. Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And what a picture this is for us, that when all is said and done, Jesus will pull you and me aside and he will take us to our place of rest. The place where we will be with him forever and he'll receive us into his eternal kingdom with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is our mission. This is our king. Will you join him as he grows his kingdom? As he grows it through messengers proclaiming repentance who suffer and die. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are not worthy of your kingdom. We, your people, are weak and afraid. Lord, we are not the, the smartest or the wealthiest or the most, the most righteous even to to proclaim your kingdom and advance your kingdom. And Lord, uh, I know I am scared by what will happen as I preach repentance. Father, please help us to trust in you. Help us to be assured by your spirit 
that as we build your kingdom, it is worth it to proclaim repentance. It is worth it to suffer and die. We pray that you would help us to win eternal friends as we see many join your kingdom and help us to be faithful to the end, whatever the cost. We pray this for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.